From Yahoo Finance, this is Electionomics. I'm Rick Newman. I'm Alexis Christophorus. Welcome to another edition of Electionomics. So glad you can join us. Today, we're going to talk about the White House's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and what we might expect from the Trump administration as we inch ever closer to Election Day in November. Joining us for this discussion is Ben Colton. He is senior researcher at Beacon Policy Advisors. Ben, it's so good to have you here with us. And I, I want to begin with President Trump's road trip that he's on at the moment traveling around to different cities. Seems like he's sort of on a on a campaign tour, if you will, trying to sell to the country the idea that this economy is bouncing back, even though we simultaneously, you know, are trying to reopen economies during this pandemic. And he's really largely leaving this latest stimulus package up to Congress. Do you think, from your perspective, that that's a smart move by President Trump? Well, his, his message of kind of economic resurgence and hope can be a powerful message with voters. I mean, we saw the man from Hope, Arkansas, was able to, to captivate voters amid a struggling economy to win an election in 92, and hope and change won the day with the onset of the financial crisis in 2008. I guess what I'd say is that Obama, or Trump's version of hope is a little bit different than Clinton and Obama's, and it's almost his hope is in a biblical sense. That Trump repeatedly refers to the coronavirus as a great and powerful plague. But as he says, America will rise from the death and destruction and become greater than ever before. And, you know, Trump is one for, for theatrics. And he's almost like making a, a remake of the 1956 uh, movie, The Ten Commandments. And instead of Charlton Heston playing Moses, he is the one that's taking that role. And <laughs> in doing Trump that. Holding back the seas. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and he'd love to be Charlton Heston in any way. And it's kind of his way of kind of deflecting blame for the coronavirus, pivoting towards the economy, and playing towards his 2016 mantra that I alone can fix it. Now, will his gambit work? I mean, it's too early to tell. I mean, interestingly, Trump does do very well with uh, voters when it says the performance of the economy. He outperforms Biden, where Biden outperforms Trump when it comes to who's better can combat the coronavirus. So if voters are more focused on rebuilding the economy than the coronavirus outbreak or the reemergence in the fall. I think that's more fertile ground for Trump. But of course, you know, I still think Trump will struggle to penetrate that kind of hope message of the economic survival. I mean, a big reason why is that, you know, Trump, you need to, you need to have trust, the, the hope that you're selling. And Trump doesn't have that trust right now with the American voters. And so I think that's something that's going to be very hard to kind of pierce through the American mindset, at least for now. Ben, I'm one of those people who thinks Trump has actually done a terrible job just in terms, just in the standard ways you would measure leadership. He has not taken responsibility. He has he has deferred to basically everybody else, let Congress pass the bill, let uh, the governors handle their response, even for things that really should be uh, the federal government's job. But his approval rating for handling the uh, crisis is still in the, around the mid to high 40s. I'm surprised it's not lower. Now, maybe I'm the one who's out of step with Americans saying, no, you need to get behind the president on this. Do you think, this, does his approval rating for handling the, the crisis, let's say it's around 45%, does that make sense to you? It does, actually. And Who are know, the 45%, do you think? Well, historically, I, I think there's always a rally around the flag effect in, in times of crisis. And we have saw that with with 9-11, we saw that with the killing of Osama bin Laden, we saw that with Jimmy Carter in the Iran-Contra uh, hostage uh, situation. And there's just a natural effect when there's a crisis to rally around leadership. And so we saw that with Trump, but remarkably or unsurprisingly, 
Trump's bump was much smaller than historically in other rally around the flag effects. And in compared to other world leaders, he was also kind of in the middle of the ground. And, and a remarkable decrease of that bump. And that's kind of really des- uh, reciprocated. And he's kind of back to that area, maybe 45%, mid to low 40s, where he was before the election. So I think people were giving him the benefit of the doubt. But even when people were giving him the benefit of the doubt, his general election polling against Biden remained kind of where he was all before, before the COVID-19 outbreak. Is it, does that suggest that, and there is a variance in the polls between the portion who say they approve or disapprove of Trump, and then when you say, would you vote for Biden or Trump? So there does seem to be a small portion of people who say, I approve of President Trump, but I might rather vote for Joe Biden in November. Am I getting that right, do you think? That's, that's exactly right. And you can What's see like his, his economic approval ratings for Trump has always been, like right now, it's like around plus 10. But there's a lot of people who approve of, of Trump, the, the man who, who, who says he can build the economy and stuff like that, but they disapprove of Trump, the man himself, and Trump, the president. And so if the, if the election was based on just like his economic approval numbers, then he'd be in very strong shape. But given that he's underperforming those numbers like 10% or so, and that job approval and like favorability ratings are more, more reflective of how voters will choose who, who they'll vote for, it's there's a lot of discount from for for a lot of these voters that they that they still don't want to vote for Trump. Hey Ben, there's this. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but Edelman, the, the PR firm, is out with its trust barometer. They do it every year, and they had to update their trust barometer recently. I mean, they did it in January, but because of the pandemic, they re-upped it. And it's it found that globally, most people right now have shifted from trusting their company and their CEO more than the government. Now most people are actually trusting the government during this pandemic than they are their own CEOs. But when you when you get a little granular and look at the U.S., here, according to this uh, report, more people put trust in local government versus federal government. What does that tell you about the way people might be viewing Trump in this election year, given those results? Well, what I'd say is that you know local government is more fo- focused on that what it, what it is, governance, and trying to like implement, you know, different guidelines and having these stay-at-home orders or just kind of being the ones who are really doing the kind of the nuts and bolts, while Trump on the national level, it's much more politicized. And so in this kind of moment of national crisis, and they're looking for like someone who's like being able to state the facts and being able to have like a clear and cohesive message that doesn't necessarily revolve around deflecting blame or other areas like that. They're looking for safety, they're looking for comfort. You're seeing that in kind of local governments, whether it's on the local level or the state level. And you're seeing kind of just the d- dissonance of like who, who voters trust more to handle the coronavirus outbreak by a two to one margin. They say governors more than Trump. Ben, so Trump is facing some things he cannot control here. You know, the, the virus itself is not his fault, obviously. And to some extent, he cannot control what people do if they uh, pay, you know, pay attention to lockdown orders and things like that or they go out. Of the things President Trump can control, what do you think he can do to improve his reelection odds? Well, I, I think that's always kind of the, the 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 big question: is what can he do to kind of change the barometer? That this Trump compared to going back through Harry Truman has had the most stable approval ratings out of any any presidents, but also and, the lowest on average, right? Uh, the lowest on average, but also the most stable, which is remarkable, even through impeachment through government shutdown through 
through all these different kind of you know crises in the 24/7 news cycle, there's been little that's been penetrating. So what Trump is doing is what what he thinks he's playing to his strength, which is a message of the economy and a message of kind of what he did in 2016, which he ran this kind of insurgent outsider saying, I alone can fix it. Let's make America great again. He's kind of retooling that to the current COVID-19 crisis. And, you know, there's all this skepticism that maybe that 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 election 2016 cannot be the same framework for 2020. But at the same time, it's hard to underestimate or doubt the, you know, the 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 war chest that Trump has in terms of money for his re-election campaign to hammer out down this issue message, but also that he has much greater visibility than than Joe Biden right now. And right now that's actually benefiting Biden. But when we get into the kind of the, the summer and the fall, if Trump is the one that's kind of crafting the message, is there like the 15% of Americans who are still kind of thinking who they vote for and they're not kind of set in one silo of Republican or Democrat, if they're seeing Trump as the one who's kind of more out there who's having like a better like economic vision, that may be a way to kind of sway some of these undecided voters. You know, Ben, on the campaign trail and throughout his presidency, China has been a target for, for President Trump. And right now, sentiment towards China in this country is not very good. You know, many are talking about where did this, where did this virus originate? Was it, did it escape from the Wuhan lab in China? Although they deny it there locally. Could that actually play in it to, to Trump in a positive way? The fact that he continues to value targeting China. I mean, it worked for him on the campaign trail. Could it work for him now, given you know where this virus seems to have come from? It's a double-edged sword for, for Trump. On the one hand, that was one of his defining messages of kind of America first, that taking away from like China and bringing jobs back, and especially kind of with trade negotiations. And sentiment among Americans, both Democrat and Republicans, have grown more anti, anti-China. But then Trump, you know, as he's seen throughout throughout the year with COVID-19, and he's saying that Xi Jinping is doing a good job and he trusts China, and now he's kind of switching back, It's he's kind of conflicted. At the one hand, he wants to bash China if he sees that as politically good, but actually following through on that bashing is something that he's worried about if, if China retaliates. And if he retaliates, it can go against kind of the, the phase one trade deal that they did, and it can make kind of life harder to some of his key constituencies like farmers. So I think it's right now it's much more bluster than actual follow through, even if there's kind of call, bipartisan calls for action against China. But I think Trump right now just sees this more as a political wedge in, in his messaging than actual legislation or actual governing. This makes me think of Trump's statements about China earlier this year. And at one point he said, he thought China was doing a very good job of handling the virus, which makes me think of all the uh, negative ads we're going to see going both ways. Um, we're already seeing some of them putting together all the things Trump has said on the virus. It's good. It'll disappear by April and all of those things. Did, will negative ads help anybody in this race? Is, is anybody, I mean, or is this just going to be a sort of a war of attrition where it makes everybody look bad and changes no voters' minds? Well, 2016, we saw this was a race to the bottom and that both Clinton and Trump had the worst favorability ratings out of any candidate in general election history. But Trump, being kind of the outsider, he won the vote of people who disapproved of both Trump and Clinton by a 17-point margin. This time, actually, Trump is more popular than he was in 2016. And additionally, Biden is more popular than Clinton. So there is going to be trying to be a kind of for Trump to make this more of a choice election than a referendum, but there may be uh, limited ability to kind of really reinforce some negative 
qualities about, about Biden like he could with Clinton. And what we're seeing right now with voters who disapprove of both Trump and Biden, Biden's actually winning this vote by at least 30 points. And it's a smaller, mar- it's a smaller voter group than in 2016, but just reflects to how hard it's going to be to cast either Trump or Biden in a negative light that's more than or equal to what it was in 2016. So these are like the hold your nose voters who don't like either one, but they figure it's their duty to vote. So they have to vote for somebody. And Biden actually holds an edge with these people. Exactly. In 2016, I think a lot of these people were Republicans who did not like Trump at all and his kind of personal qualities, but abhorred Clinton even more. And so they kind of they held their nose. And since Trump was elected, a lot of the Republicans have really gotten on board with the Trump campaign. And so what we're seeing now is maybe there are some people who are hesitant from the progressive base of the Democratic Party, maybe Bernie supporters or Elizabeth Warren supporters who don't really like Biden who he is, but they're saying, you know, he is the lesser of two evils. And I think a lot of those voters are coming into the fold. You know, Ben, I'm wondering if one way Trump could help himself is by maybe interjecting on this fourth stimulus package and having some infrastructure be part of it. Because, you know, throughout his presidency, again, on the campaign trail and then up until his presidency now, we haven't really, he's talked a lot about infrastructure, but we haven't really gotten anything meaningfully meaningful done in that area. Do you think that that's one area where, you know, maybe it's a bipartisan thing where he could actually come out looking really good if he's able to get that done? It, it would. I mean, ideally for Trump and for McConnell's you know, job security in November, they'd want to push something that's like a big spending package that kind of puts America's to work and shows that they are getting things done. But for Trump, follow through is always the issue. Like He may have a, a message of hope, but when it comes to governing, all his governing strategies are based on hope as well. And that's not an effective governing strategy that he'll maybe send out a tweet or he'll say, you know, let's do a true trillion dollar infrastructure plan. But he just has no follow through and he's not willing to exert the political capital to bring Republicans on board when Republicans, especially Mitch McConnell and several other in the kind of Republican caucus are hesitant for these big spending packages that are ancillary to kind of COVID-19. And so there may be like very much kind of like a bipartisan hope as we've seen throughout Trump's tenure of infrastructure weeks, but we continue to remain skeptical that there's actually there's actually a a, a solution in the middle to to come up with infrastructure. Can we just tell our audience who may not know, Infrastructure Week is like an inside joke in Washington, right? Um, Yes. uh, Because the first Infrastructure Week was, we're going to talk about an infrastructure bill as if we're actually going to legislate it, but then nothing happened. And then there wasn't, the Trump White House actually said there was another Infrastructure Week. And I don't know how many times they've done that now, but now it's just kind of a running joke. Let me ask you about the stimulus that is still yet to come, because I know Beacon has done a lot of work on this. So to my mind, there are a few big ideas, and I would just like to get you to handicap what you think is a likelihood some of these could happen. So one of the biggest is aid to states and cities that are just seeing their tax revenues plunge. I think that's fairly likely. Then there's this Republican priority of a liability immunity for businesses. That seems quite tricky. And there's talk that, I don't know if this is either party is pushing this, but that Congress should put forward a lot more money for a national testing program. So three uh, things right there, and then any others that I'm missing, but what do you think are the odds of those things happening? Yeah. So I I think when it comes to state and local funding and the liability shields that Republicans are, are asking for, I think both are very likely to be included in a phase four deal. And I'm, I'm taking that from that both, 
Pelosi has explicitly said that's a red line, the state and local government, and McConnell has said that it's a red line for the liability shield. And I believe that, you know, despite all the kind of the bluster and public posturing right now, both Pelosi and McConnell do want to get a deal done. For Pelosi, it's all about CARES 2, and it's about what she couldn't get in CARES 1 and the Phase 3.5 deal. For, for McConnell, it's about kind of ensuring confidence in reopening the economy. And he believes like a liability shield is necessary, especially for kind of the business constituency. And so I think you see these public posturing, but once you get into the negotiations, there will definitely be some good faith room for, for, for movement there. And in terms of kind of other aspects, like a testing program, we did see some funding for testing in phase 3.5. We saw kind of Scott Gottlieb and Andy, Andy Slavitt come out with a, about a $50 billion program for contact tracing to be in this next phase four deal. And I think that's very possible. And, and so I think when we think about like, what are, what can be the contours of a, a phase four deal besides kind of like the red lines of the state and local aid and kind of the liability shield, it's what, you know, Democrats and Republicans, the leadership can get support of from, from other members of Congress, and then be able to kind of wedge that into the negotiation process. And right now there's a lot of uncertainty there Pelosi wants to kind of think big and McConnell wants to think small and keep it narrow. But kind of once kind of the, the dam is broken and, you know, they're, they're kind of trading one idea for the other, this could certainly add up to a hefty phase four deal. And it's not hard to imagine a lot of workers saying this, this, is, a, this is totally unfair to us. You're saying you're, we have to go to work and if we get sick, there's, we have no recourse. So is that a liability for Republicans? I mean, that's kind of uh, the, the, the fine line that they have to walk. There was some hesitancy about making this uh, a big agenda item because it could be seen as being pro-big business. And you're already seeing with the stimulus packages so far that there's a kind of a backlash against the stimulus and outrage how big businesses have benefited over like small businesses. And so it's kind of a fine line that they have to, have to walk, but they're kind of arguing that right now, you know, it's important for healthcare workers, it's important for healthcare providers, it's important for small businesses to be able to confidently reopen that they're not worried about some ancillary or some superfluous lawsuit that, you know, that wasn't under their control. And so it is going to be a kind of a war on messaging. And I think there's like, there is a, there is an outcome here where there's a narrowly tailored liability shield that relates just to the kind of coronavirus and COVID-19 outbreak. And they're talking about if there's gross negligence or however you define that term, then a lot of these companies will still be liable. But it's certainly it's it's a tough it's a tough it's a tough policy to necessarily defend against when Democrats are saying they're they're focused on workers and they're focused on you know, helping the little people and Republicans are, th- are more focused on kind of big business. I mean, by definition, Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats would have to approve that, so they're going to have a lot of control over the uh, nature of that shield, right? Sure, they will. But at the same time, McConnell is going to have a lot of have a lot of authority over what the state and local government looks like. You know, he's saying the Republicans are kind of sticking to like, oh, maybe we can just stick with the 150 billion that was already allocated, but just open up the restrictions a bit, or maybe there'll be a little more money. But Pelosi's asking for a trillion dollars, so it's going to be this, a game between two master negotiators in in Congress and Pelosi and McConnell. And Pelosi certainly does have some from some leverage here over McConnell, over shaping this liability shield. And you're already seeing a lot of business groups saying, you know, we want this to be very, you know, temporary and specifically tailored to, to the coronavirus. And so they're not kind of thinking of, about greater tort reform in that af- effort. Hey, Ben, what about more help for small businesses? You know, we had first round money 
uh, I think, disappeared. And I, I think it was less than two weeks. And at, at the time of this taping here of electionomics, it looks like the money is starting to run out on the second one as well. Do you think that the fourth stimulus package will include more assistance for small businesses? And, and what might that look like? I do. I think there has been a, a bit of a backlash and damage control by Republicans about kind of how the how the uh, Paycheck Protection Program has been implemented, but they are not in a position to abandon it, given that this is something that they, they were kind of defending. And if they seen as abandoning it, it seems like they're abandoning small businesses. So we're already seeing kind of Republicans like Marco Rubio or John Barrasso saying that this will be a high priority in kind of phase four, especially if the money is about to run out. And what it could look like, it's, it's still kind of being debated. I think Republicans would be just fine saying, okay, let's just add another infusion into into the Paycheck Protection Program, maybe another like 300 billion or so. But Democrats are saying, let's have an automatic stabilizer so we don't have to keep going back to the well each time the, the funding runs dry, that there'll be like an automatic approval. And then there's more further talk about maybe changing what kind of the, the guidelines that the IRS and Treasury implemented that maybe seems may seems like a little overly onerless, onerous for, for small businesses. So one aspect is the requirement that 75% of the of the loan be for payroll and for 25 percent other overhead costs and for companies like restaurants or other areas that have lower labor costs and higher you know rent in other areas they think that this is not a good uh a good focus for them it needs to be kind of rejiggered and then another issue that's being brought up by members of kind of the house ways and ways and means committee as well as senate finance is that a lot of this aid cannot be used to kind of deduct against your taxes. And that given that, you know, this is then kind of kind of blunting the, the benefits for, for these small businesses, they want to make sure that, you know, this A can be used as deductions and on their tax liability. But I'm going to put you on the spot here. By, by the end of October of this year, we're only a few days from the election. What's your guess about the political environment and the economic environment? You think it will favor Trump's reelection or Biden's election? I see this as right now a coin cost, but Biden is operating with a lucky penny in that coin in that coin toss, in the sense that you know the that this is election between Biden and Trump, and it's an election that's a referendum on Trump, and it's been consistently even before the COVID nineteen crisis that Trump was trailing Biden, and is trailing him by kind of mid to high single digits, and the issue for for Trump is that he can say or do as much as he wants, but Americans are very much inured into what they view as who Trump is and what they like and they don't like about them. And it's clear that uh, the majority of America does not want Trump to be reelected. And Biden is, seems to be the kind of that generic democratic alternative that's kind of acceptable. In terms of the economy, you know, there's talks about being a V-shaped recovery, a W-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery. And right now, there's, just, there's a lot of risk that we're not prepared for a, uh, a continuing flare-up of the coronavirus, and B, a re-emergence of it in the fall. And when we don't have the systems in place like contact or contact tracing or testing, other things like that, we're very, you know, have a high risk of having to shut down again and be in the state of fear and confusion that leads to like a lack of confidence for consumers and a lack of confidence for businesses to, to remain open. So I think there's a lot of downside from the hope that kind of Trump is trying to propel onto voters for his reelection process and the state of the economy. So to your mind, Ben, is this Joe Biden's race to lose at this point? I, I think it is. I, I, I'd say that for Joe Biden, he's done best when he's kind of been in the periphery, that he was outspent in the Democratic primary, but he still won. 
he's being outspent and outshined by Trump right now, but he's still very much high in kind of the, his polling. Of course, a lot can change right now. But Biden, when you look back in history, he's at the strongest position of a challenger against an incumbent since FDR was facing Herbert Hoover in 1932. And, you know, I think Trump does have something of, 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 of a floor in terms of that he will have the support of at least 40 percent of the country. And he does better in a lot of these battleground states. But it's hard to say that Biden is not kind of at least on the better advantage than, than Trump. And that certainly could grow as kind of the coronavirus and the economy linger on. Maybe Biden should just stay in his basement. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's been <laughs> one, of the, one of the better, the less visibility, the greater for Biden. We're going to leave it there, guys. And I want to thank Ben Colton, senior researcher of Beacon Policy Advisors, for being with us today. Some great insights there. And thanks to all of you for uh, checking out this podcast. Be sure to follow me at Alexis TV News. And me at Rick J. Newman and Ben. Oh, it's uh, Ben underscore Colton. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks a lot, guys. And be sure to rate and review what you just saw and heard. And we'll see you next time. Bye.